0: We're looking at Jude 3 and 4 this morning. Again, you'll find that on page 1027 if you're using a copy of the church Bible. And I know you're going to find it helpful to have your own copy of Scripture open and to be reading along with me this morning. And before we do uh, jump in again to this series on acceptable worship and why we do what we do in worship, let me pray for us and ask the Lord to be present with us and to bless the preaching of his word father what a what a privilege to sit under the ministry of your word what a privilege to hear the very voice of god as the scripture is proclaimed we thank you that you have breathed out the scriptures we thank you that your word does not the scripture does not contain your word but it is your word we thank you our god when your word is read and preached that the truth is uh is proceeding from your mouth to our ears we pray that you would soften our hearts we pray that you would give us that gift of faith we pray that you would enable us to to cherish your word and to love your word and to defend your word and to um, to own your word for ourselves we pray our father that you would make us to see the living word the lord jesus even as your word is read and preached this morning we pray these things in jesus name amen Uh, we're looking at jude three and four this morning and there. Uh, Jude, who is uh, the brother of James and presumably the brother of Jesus, writes now to uh, a people to whom God has appointed him to write, and he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the Word of God endures forever. Well, one of the things that uh, most people find strange when they first come to a Presbyterian or a Reformed church is that we have a confession of faith. We have a time in which we confess these, these ancient and to uh, many postmodern people, very odd uh, traditional historic creeds and confessions. Um, and, and without fail, someone who begins coming to a Presbyterian or Reformed church will ask why, why, do we, why do we profess our faith using the Apostles' Creed? Why do we profess our faith using the Nicene Creed? Why, why do we use Reformed? confessions and catechisms. It's actually interesting to me, um, one of the things that bothers so many in broad evangelicalism more than anything about the Reformed Church is our use of creeds and confessions. And yet, uh, a very cursory uh, reading of church history shows us that creeds and confessions have had an enormous role to play in the life of the church, that they they have been fixtures, they have been established fixtures in the life of the church. And not just Throughout church history, post the apostolic age, they have been fixtures in the scriptures. Um, there are uh, Paul will write to Timothy and to Titus in the pastoral letters, and he will refer to five what he calls faithful sayings. They they were confessions that were already in the days of the apostle in circulation in the church. They were they were truths that the church professed together to believe and there are uh, throughout the letters there are these sort of shorthand ways in which the apostle paul will talk about confessions and creeds Um, it's very interesting when the apostle um, paul speaks of um, established christian doctrine He will, as we see in this passage and we'll see more clearly this morning, he will call it our common salvation, or he will also call it the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Elsewhere, he will call it the pattern of sound doctrine. Um, He will even call it the good confession. And the apostle is telling us that there is this received doctrine that the church has been given by God that is timeless, that is transcendent, that is the very foundation of the Christian life and that confessing that is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian. The apostle will say in in Romans 10, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and we believe in our hearts that God has raised him from the dead, we will be saved. We want to look this morning at what Jude does in this very interesting passage. While he is not uh, per se speaking about a corporate verbal confession of faith and worship, no doubt that is included in what Jude is writing to these saints who have been beleaguered by false teaching. It's it's one of those letters, and I don't know how much you have read Jude or 2 Peter, but it, it goes on and on and on in heaping up descriptions of false teachers and those who pervert the truth, and what a, great, what a great enemy that is to the church. What a great hostility that is to the faith of God's people. And notice, as we look at this this morning, first we're going to see the call to understand the uh, delivery of the truths of Christianity to the church. Secondly, we're going to see the call to defend the faith that was once delivered to the saints, and then in the third place, we're going to see the implications of the faith that was once delivered to the saints. The call to understand, the call to defend, and the implications about the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, notice Jude, as he enters in on this, wants to write a different letter. I've always thought that was interesting. Jude essentially says in verse 3, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation. Essentially saying, I had a letter I wanted to write to you, but now the current situation, the current climate in the church, and the threat of false teachers in the church and pressing around the church and perverting the truth around you have necessitated that I write you a different letter. Now, That's important uh, for a number of reasons. The first is that in his very statement, um, Jude is telling us that there is a common salvation. There is a common salvation. There There is a salvation that every true believer experiences in common that is only in Jesus Christ, only according to the truth of the Scripture only in keeping with what the apostolic doctrine is, never changing. While there may be progression in doctrinal development, there is never change in the common salvation. There's never change in the doctrines that God has breathed out in his word. There's a commonality. Uh, It's very interesting. Jude, more than almost anyone else, really drives that point home. He'll do that again, won't he, there in verse 3 when he says, But I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, um, if you have taken any uh, biblical studies courses at secular universities, I'm sorry. I I can't imagine how painful that would be. Um, I've had numerous friends whose faith was either bolstered by the ludicrousy that they were taught in Ivy League schools, or was so shaken that they almost apostatized, um, and and one of the things that you will often hear, and almost uh, uniformly hear in secular universities that have, ironically, biblical studies departments, is that um, that the church uh, develops doctrine communally. That that. Doctrine is, well, Well, they believe this, but, but we believe this, and they believe this, and what makes them right? And, then, and you can see how postmodernism is very, very, very powerful today. Because if we adopt the idea that, that our salvation, based on biblical truth, is developed... Communally, and that church history gives us those doctrines and that the things we read, for instance, in the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Belgic Confession or any of the rich Reformed Confessions are merely the product of man, and, and we, we then say, well, all doctrine is a byproduct of men amalgamating things and giving us their opinion, then what we do is we fail to understand the nature of the faith once delivered to the saints by God. Now, notice that as Jude is uh, eager to talk about the common salvation, he um, he is saying so much, even as he is saying he has to call the people of God to defend that salvation. Notice he says that it was once for all delivered. Now, Um, before I unpack that, I want to say there is a way of reading what Jude says here in verse 3 improperly. It would be, I think, improper to read the faith as your personal subjective faith in Jesus. No doubt that is part of the common salvation. If you do not personally believe in Jesus, you will not be saved. If you do not put your trust in Jesus for your eternal salvation, you do not partake in the common salvation. But the faith that Jude is speaking about here is something objective. He is talking about the faith. Uh, the, the, use of the article highlights that. He says that I'm writing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now the question is, when, when was it delivered? Well, it was delivered throughout that period of biblical revelation. It was was delivered through the writings of the prophets in the Old Testament. It was delivered through the writing of the apostles and the prophets in the New Testament. It is the the depository of biblical revelation. Everything that God has breathed out in the scriptures is the faith, and all those truths that so sweetly comply with one another is called the faith. Um, I'm going to use some Latin terms for you this morning because they're important. Uh, if uh, you read any books on biblical interpretation and, and how, how do we know that we have appropriately interpreted God's word, you will come across two, two helpful terms to guide you. One is the analogia fide, one is the analogia scriptura, the analogy of faith and the analogy of scripture. And what those two things are saying is that uh, God's word is so perfect and so harmonious that God has breathed it out in such a perfect, systematized way that all the truths of Scripture harmonize with one another. All the doctrines fall into place perfectly together. That there, are, there is nothing that contradicts in the Bible. If you, if you think you found contradictions, then, then you have not tried hard enough to reconcile them. That's, that's your problem. Um, there, there are no contradictions in Scripture. God's word sweetly complies. It it is a beautiful harmony of doctrine. And uh, when we read scripture and we're wondering, well, what what about this? What is this actually saying? We we go to other parts of scripture and we compare scripture with scripture. That's the analogy of scripture. The apostle Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians 2. He, He says we compare spiritual things with spiritual. That's how spiritual people understand the spiritual truths of the doctrines of Christianity. Scripture with scripture. And then if we ask the question, well, there are those very difficult portions of scripture. There are those portions that your pastor will never quite 100% be sure about. Like why then are they baptized for the dead? I don't know what that means. I have an educated guess what that means. There are some very difficult, Parts of scripture but what we can do is we can then appeal to the analogy of faith the analogia fide and we can say well if if this it doesn't comply somehow to other things in scripture and accepted christian doctrine then it it can't be right that can't mean that there are post-baptismal practices that the early church practiced because the apostle paul would would uh, pronounce a denunciation on that so we, we look at the scripture and we look at how it works together. And, and what we see is that there is a faith. There is a objective faith, Christian faith. And as the Apostle Paul calls it, there is a pattern of sound words that have been entrusted to ministers of the gospel and to the church. You know, it's interesting when Jude says here, that the faith was once for all delivered to the saints. It's such a pregnant phrase. The living God, and I want you to get this today, if, you, if you're bored by creeds and confessions and doctrine, don't miss this. The living God has decided in all of eternity that he would make you a trustee of his truth for its propagation and defense for now and for all time. Now, that, that is, that's amazing. Maybe you've never thought of yourself that way if you're a Christian. I, I want to read this. Thomas Manton, wow, this is amazing. Thomas Manton said, um, God has delivered the doctrine and rule of faith to the church as a public trustee. So does the church need trustees? Yes, for truth more than for money. Yes. As a public trustee, he's, he's entrusted Doctrine and the rule of faith to the church as a public trustee, that it may be kept and employed for the uses of the truth, namely to publish it to the present age and to keep it and preserve it for ages to come. Manton says, and I quote, so that to the present age we are witnesses to the future trustees. Isn't that marvelous? the doctrine that God has breathed out in Scripture, he has decided I will entrust that to my people to be witnesses to it both verbally and by their lives in the here and now, and then to defend it against all error so that in the future generations, men and women will have that entrusted depository of truth that God entrusted once for all to the church. That's amazing. That's amazing. The church is like a truth bank. It's a truth bank. And God said, I'm going to put all my money in that bank, and you have the combination. And I want you to guard that truth. I want you to love that truth. I want you to understand that truth. I want you to profess that truth. I want you to confess that truth. And, and this is so wonderful. Manton goes on. He says, the Christian faith was delivered to saints and by saints And none receive it so willingly and defend it so zealously and keep it so charitably and faithfully as they do. That is awesome. That is awesome. God has said, I am going to make you a trustee of the precious truths of my word so that you will love them and you will proclaim them and you will defend them and you will live by them and you will propagate them and you will be witnesses to them. And it's marvelous. And notice that Jude says that it was once for all delivered to the saints. It's only given to believers to defend. The world will not defend God's truth. I, I uh, have a friend in ministry who often says if, if the church doesn't build hospitals, somebody will. If the church doesn't preach the gospel and defend the truth, nobody will. Um, it is part and parcel of what it means to be a Christian, to receive, love, love, defend, propagate, and bear witness to the faith, and that is the faith, obviously, of the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. Now, um, I want to ask you this morning, are you someone that loves truth? Um, That's a question we should ask ourselves. Do I love truth? Do I love doctrine? Do I love Searching the scriptures do I love reading books that help me understand the scriptures better do I love going deeper if, you, if you're a Christian you should love you should love being able to go, go into the the uh, the ledgers think of think of church history and especially reformation church history think of think of all the rich reformed writings as as the ledgers keeping account of the riches of what's in God's bank of truth and, and you get to go and say wow Look at all these riches. Look what else is there. Look what else is there. And, and understand all that the scriptures contain in, in so much depth and riches. If you're a Christian, you should love that. You should love that. And, and that should, uh, that should uh, redound and um, should, should result in us loving to confess those truths publicly. Um, you know, whenever we do the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, I sometimes feel like there are always people who are just thinking, okay, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. This is us saying this is the faith that we confess. This is the faith that God has deposited to us. This is the faith once for all delivered to the saints and only to the saints, only to the saints. That's marvelous. When we confess those things we, we, we are saying, I love these truths. I love this truth. This is the only truth in the world. A ter- Tertullian, who himself had some fairly um, skewed theology, uh, however, made a great statement where he said, once we realize that Jesus Christ is everything, we realize that we need nothing else. Once we realize that uh, the scriptures are everything, we need nothing else, because then we realize that this is the only thing that we're actually called to believe. And so everything else in the world with which we might concern ourselves, education, philosophy, science, um, any other mysteries, anything else should, should, should fall into oblivion in our interest compared to the importance of the truth once for all delivered to the saints. And then notice that Jude tells us that uh, we are called to defend that truth, contend. Notice he says, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, uh, it's interesting in, in a day in which, and I've called this many times, the cold of niceness prevails and um, the why can't we all just get along uh, denial of the truth of God's word prevails. And uh, almost everybody that you talk to outside of the church belongs to that cult um, today. Uh, in that day, it is so vital for us to understand that the truth shines the brightest when it is, it's in the darkness of falsehood threatening it all around. Um, uh, the, the historic creeds and the development of doctrine in the, in the early church um, happened because of the danger of false teaching. Um, Chalcedon, Nicaea, the, the councils that we care so deeply about. The truths about Jesus is two natures in one person, inseparable, individable, um, indivisible, indivisible, um, uh, not confused, the two natures in the one person of Jesus Christ. That came out of controversy. That came out of false teaching, pressing in on the truth of God's word and, and councils coming together to defend the truth and contend for the truth. And, and we are then the beneficiaries of what they Contended for, and the refinements and the developments, the truth that Jesus is coequal with the Father, that He is not subordinate in any way whatsoever in the Godhead, in the ontological Trinity, in the being of God. Jesus is absolutely equal with the Father in every way. He is God. Came out of false teaching threatening that, um, and and Jude here so early in the church, and one of the very interesting things about um, uh, this letter and really in the New Testament is that the majority of what the apostles and the New Testament prophets have given us in scripture is written because the truth was being threatened by false prophets, false teachers, or false living, or a combination of both. So you wouldn't have a New Testament if there weren't false teachers threatening the once for all delivered truth. There would be no new testament there would be no jude there would be no second peter most of the pastoral letters wouldn't exist galatians wouldn't exist most of romans wouldn't exist hebrews wouldn't exist and on and on and on and on and so we need to understand that it is vital that we are called to contend for the faith uh j gretchen machin who was a great warrior of the faith who broke from the old mainline presbyterian church when it was going uh, flamingly liberal and denying all of the, the truths of the common salvation, denying the virgin birth, denying the deity of Christ, denying uh, the the substitutionary atonement of Jesus, denying eternal uh, judgment, eternal destruction, denying all the truths of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Um, Machen almost single-handedly took them on and, and in a radio address in, uh, I believe it was 1937, Machen is talking about Um, how uh, the great doctrines of the Christian faith are are, um, both organized and proclaimed against the background of falsehood. And, And Machen says this. These are profound thoughts. He says, first, you can't set forth clearly what a thing is without contrasting it with what it is not. I want you to listen very carefully. You can't set forth clearly what a thing is without contrasting it first with what it is not, definition proceeds by way of exclusion. Definition, doctrinal truth, proceeds by way of exclusion. So, for instance, when the gospel is threatened in Galatia and the Judaistic heresy comes in and people say, yes, salvation's by Jesus, but you also need to observe the dietary laws. And the Apostle Paul realizes that the gospel is at stake and that the common salvation's at at stake and the once for all uh, delivered faith given to the saints is being jeopardized, he he does something wonderful in Galatians chapter two. He says to Peter, who was also in jeopardy of losing the gospel, he says, uh, we who are justified by faith in Christ, it's a positive statement, we who are justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, negative statement, Definition always proceeds by way of exclusion. We who are justified by faith in Christ, not by works of the law, he says, knowing that a man is justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, even we who have believed in Christ and are justified by faith in Christ know that a man is not justified by works of the law. Go read it, Galatians 2, 16. There you have a proof text of what Machen is saying. He's saying that all truth, and if you want to defend truth, And if we want to contend for the truth, we have to realize that all truth is definition proceeding by way of exclusion. And that when we want to say what we're for, we must necessarily say what we are not saying and what that truth is against. Now, Machen goes on and in a very interesting way, uh, says this. He says, of the creeds of Christendom, so the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all these early church creeds, and then obviously he's speaking of the Westminster Confession of Faith and the Heidelberg Catechism. He says, the creeds of Christendom are not expressions of Christian experience. So get this. So when we confess on Sunday morning, I believe, my credo, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, And we go on to confess all the truths. We are not confessing our Christian experience. Machen says, we are confessing summary statements of what God tells us in his word. We are confessing summary statements of what God has told us in his word. And then, I'll give you this last quote because I found it very helpful. Machen said, truth can be maintained only when it is sharply differentiated from error. Truth will be maintained only when it is sharply differentiated from error. Now, um, I understand you may be one of those people that don't like conflict. I, to the surprise of some, don't like conflict. Um, I like comfort and ease and quiet. and, And conflict is not comfortable or easy or quiet. Um, but God doesn't call us to comfort, in the realm of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. He doesn't. God calls us to defend the truth of the Scriptures in the face of all the falsehood, all the nuances, all the subtleties, all the heresy. And and here's the beautiful thing: when we come and we profess together what we believe using uh, rich biblical, historical creeds and confessions we are defending that truth. We are excluding everything else. We are saying, here is the definition of truth by way of exclusion from all the things that have attacked it through the centuries. This is the timeless truths of the Christian faith that we profess to believe, that we love, that we adhere to, and when we profess them, and I want us to get this this morning, every time we truly and really profess those together corporately in worship, it's a witness it's a, it's, a, it's a defense. It's a, it's a contending for the faith. And then when, when we take it from the corporate nature of it into our individual lives and, and the truth grabs hold of us and that I'm not just saying, well, yeah, I give an intellectual assent to that. I believe in one God. Of course, there's only one God, but it owns us. It owns us. The truth must own you. If the truth doesn't own you, it's not the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And, and when it owns us, we start to realize how precious it is, and we long to defend it. We long to confess it. We long to proclaim it. Um, another theologian who, who ministered with Machen uh, said this, most modern people hold the view that a creed is something to be forced. I think a lot of people have that view a doctrinal statement that we confess together, that's being forced, you're forcing that on us. He says most people have that view that a creed is something to be forced or imposed on other people. He said that's utterly perverse. Nothing could be further from the proper function of a creed. It ought to be a very joyful affirmation of the truth, a very joyful affirmation of the truth with the benefited affirmant And him wanting to pass on to others in a clear and simple form those truths that he is professing. So what we are witnessing, you know, we're going to come to the table later. And the Apostle Paul has that interesting statement in 1 Corinthians 11 um, where he's instituting the supper. And he says, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes corporately. You, I don't know if you know that. When you come to the table, if you're coming with a right heart and you're coming examining yourself and seeing your need for Jesus and wanting to feed on Christ and needing his atoning sacrifice and needing his substitutionary death, we are collectively proclaiming the gospel, proclaiming the truth to everyone. Anyone who might come in that doesn't yet know or maybe has been here for many, many, many months or years and doesn't know the truth in their hearts, that is a witness, that is a proclamation. It should be a joyful affirmation that results in propagating truths to others. Now, I want to say this in the third place. Jude moves on from calling us to understand the nature of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints and calling us to defend the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, to explaining the byproducts of the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Notice verse four, he says, why is it necessary to do this? What is the effect of false teaching? He says, for certain people have crept in unnoticed. Notice the the stealthiness of false teaching. False teachers never say this. They never say, hey, I'm a false teacher guys, listen up. False teacher. Seriously. These guys over here, boo. Yay for us. False teachers. They never do that. Never. Notice Jude says they creep in unnoticed. They're stealthy. They creep in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, Jesus says, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality. It's okay for you to live in sexual sin. You're justified. Don't worry about it. That's false teaching. Hey, you know what? Um, I just heard the story of a minister, I think it was on in CNN, who had been caught in an affair and he was like, well, you know, I love this woman and you know what? Jesus paid for all my sins. It's false teaching. That's false teaching. They deny the grace of God, they turn it into sensuality, and they deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Now what Jude is doing, and this is the important thing we want to take, is not to just say, okay, those guys over there teaching things that aren't part of this, and well, you know, they've got their thing, we have our thing. What Jude is saying is that the faith, the once-for-all delivered faith that the truth paul will say the truth that accords with godliness so that if i am believing the truths of scripture if i'm believing the jesus of scripture if i'm believing the true gospel godliness should be the byproduct in my life not perfect sinlessness but godliness holiness the truth accords with godliness why defend the truth Because it produces godliness and Christ-likeness in the lives of those that really believe it. Why reject falsehood? Because it leads to ungodliness, sensuality, and condemnation. You see, it's not just mere verbal assent to this statement or that statement, to this doctrine or that doctrine. Um, Everything that we believe has an implication to it. If, If someone began to deny eternal punishment. There have been many who have done that. That is going to have uh, uh, an ungodly influence in your life. If you begin to say, well, maybe hell isn't eternal, it will impact your, your, your it, it will lead to ungodliness. It will. It will necessarily lead to that. Um, if, if there's no hell, and, and I'm not in danger of going there forever and never getting out under the wrath of God for all eternity, then what's the big deal about needing Jesus? I mean, eat, we eat and drink, and tomorrow we die, and little punishment, who cares? Nihilated? Okay, great. Um, if we deny, if we deny uh, the exclusivity of Jesus, if we say, well, yeah, I know for us, for us we say Jesus is like, he's the mediator, he's the high priest. I hear, by the way, I've heard a lot of people in my life say this in churches. For us, for us, if you, if, okay, if you don't take anything else from this rant, because this is more of a rant than a sermon this morning. I'm sorry about that. If, if you, I know it's a rant, if you, uh, if you don't take anything else away from this, and I hope you take a lot more away, but please catch yourself improperly saying for us whenever you speak about doctrine. Like, Make one of your goals in the application of this sermon Never to have a conversation about doctrine with somebody and say, well, for us, it's either this is what the Scripture teaches and the church has affirmed. And yes, there has been a lot of variation in the church over the years, but it doesn't mean that we reduce it down and say it doesn't matter. But is this truth squarely taught in Scripture? Is it confessed by the church? And, and I I will say this unashamedly. I think the Reformed confessions are not perfect, but they are the best explanation of Christian doctrine in in all of the subjects of Scripture. All the doctrinal systematic subjects, the Reformed creeds and confessions are the richest and the fullest. And and if if it's not if it's not received by uh, the church throughout the centuries and the millennia uh, d- d- more or less purely, then then it's not. Biblical doctrine, and and so we want to guard against saying for us, but we want to test it. We want to say, um, will this make me? And I think it's always a good question to say. And I do this as a pastor a lot, actually. Um, if I have to counsel someone who's living in sin and um, and I'm not sure they're repentant, I have to do this with my own heart. Um, The worst thing in the world would be for me to say, hey, don't worry about it. You're justified. Don't worry about it. That would be very easy to do. But if that fuels ungodliness, then there's something wrong. The Bible says, don't be deceived. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, homosexuals, thieves, drunkards, sodomites will not inherit the kingdom. But such were some of you You were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified in the name of Jesus and by the Spirit of the living God. So if you've been washed in the truth of the gospel in Christ, that should result in a desire to live a godly life. And all those truths have implications. Now, what does that mean when we confess publicly? Um, I think minimally it means that we should be not only um, verbalizing intellectual assent, but we should be coaching our hearts. I had uh, a mentor, uh, Phil Riken, who used to walk every Sunday, I'd see him do this, and, I ne- and one of the other pastors pointed it out, I'd see him mumbling something as he walked over to the pulpit to preach. He would be, um, be kind of mumbling something, and. Um, And one of the pastors said, you ever see Phil walking up to the pulpit and and kind of talking to himself? And I said, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. And he goes, you know what he's saying? And I said, no, what? And he said, he's saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. You see, he wasn't just saying, I believe in the Holy Spirit. Let's get this over with. He was appropriating the truths that we confess to believe at the moments when he needed that truth to grip his heart the most behind the pulpit and out in public. We we should be taking the confessions that we confess and we should be appropriating them to ourselves and proclaiming them to our hearts and stirring ourselves up to believe them when we're out in public, when we're rubbing shoulders with people that don't believe them around us, when we're in the church. So our public confession of the, the faith should then drive us out to live godly lives to be a witness to those truths both in word and in life, and, and they should be gripping our hearts through the week in all that we do. Um, I have many times, and when um, my mom passed away, um, began, and subsequently to that, began thinking about that phrase, I believe in the resurrection of the dead very differently than I've ever believed it before. Do I really believe in the resurrection of the dead? Do I really believe that my mom is gonna rise one day? Do I really believe that I'm going to rise one day? Do I really believe that you will rise to either eternal life or judgment one day? Yes, I do. But how, how often do we ask ourselves? I believe in the resurrection. How often do we defend the doctrine of the resurrection? The Apostle Paul uh, dedicated 59 verses in 1 Corinthians 15 to defending the truth of the resurrection against people denying it. Um, You know, I want to encourage you that we are together in the common salvation that we have in Christ. And we are together believing the same once-for-all faith delivered to the saints. And there's this really wonderful uh, line in 1 Timothy chapter 6, I believe it's verse 13, where Paul is admonishing Timothy to make the good confession... And, and that's probably referring to the confession he made at his baptism and then when he was ordained as a minister, the confession of faith in Christ, just like Peter had made that confession at Caesarea Philippi. But Paul does something amazing. He charges Timothy to be a good soldier in the ministry to make the good confession of faith, obviously both in word and in life. And then he says that he committed him to Jesus Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. That, that should be of some interest to you since in the Apostles' Creed we mention Pontius Pilate. Um, not because he has any theological significance, but he, he is the historical judge who condemned Jesus to death. And the Apostle says that Jesus, the head of the church, the one who breathed out all the scriptures, the one who has delivered to the saints, to you and me, the once for all revealed faith, he also made the good public confession on his way to the cross to be what we confess. That's marvelous. He, he made the good confession on the way to the cross to be the very substance of what we confess. Um, so that not only are we not alone in confessing these truths together collectively, but that the head of the church has gone before us and has confessed it and has secured these truths for us and is the very epicenter of the faith that we confess. Um, I hope that these things will stir you up. I hope, I'm sure, many of you have learned nothing new, except maybe not to say, you know, well, we believe this and they believe that. Um, but I hope that you'll think about the importance of a confession of faith. I hope that you'll think about the importance of you being among the saints in the congregation, confessing your faith, being owned by those truths, having them permeate your hearts and your minds afresh, maybe, maybe for the first time. You know, maybe, maybe your heart's never been gripped by the truths that we confess in the Christian assembly, or maybe for the 10,000th time. You've been saying them since you were a child, you're still saying them. Um, may God give us grace, and may the Spirit give us ears to hear what he says this morning to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us a people that love uh, the pattern of sound doctrine, a people who love your truth, a people who understand the preciousness of your truth and who, um, who confess it and who proclaim it and who seek to live in accord with it, and who defended against all perversion, all false teaching, all error, all ungodliness. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would be merciful to us. We pray that you would be to us again this morning, the great high priest of our confession. As you say in the book of Hebrews, we pray, our God, that you would establish us in these faithful and precious and eternal truths. We pray, our God, that you would be honored in the witness that we seek to bear in both word and in life. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.